Boy of Galilee, Chapter Three. It was nearly the close of the day when the long caravan halted, and tents were pitched for the night near a little brook that came splashing down from a cold mountain spring. Joel, exhausted by the long day's travel, crowded so full of new experiences, was glad to stretch his cramped limbs on a blanket that Phinehas took at the camel's back. Here through half-shut eyes he watched the building of the campfire and the preparations for the evening meal. I wonder what Uncle Laban would do if he were here, he said to Phineas with an amused smile. Look at those dirty drivers with their unwashed hands and unblessed food. How little regard they have for the law. Uncle Laban would fast a lifetime rather than taste anything that had even been passed over a fair of their building. I can imagine I see him now gathering up his skirts and walking on the tips of his sandals for fear of being touched by anything unclean. Your Uncle Laban is a good man, answered Phineas, one careful not to transgress the law. Yes, said the boy, but I like your way better. You keep the fastest and repeat the prayers and love God and your neighbors. Uncle Laban is careful to do the first two things. I am not so sure about the others. Life is too short to be always washing one's hands. Phineas looked at the little fellow sharply. How shrewd and old he seemed for one of his years. Such independence of thought was unusual in a child trained as he had been. He scarcely knew how to answer him, so he turned his attention to spreading out the fruits and bread he had brought for their supper. Next morning, after the caravan had gone on without them, they started up a narrow bridle path that led through hillside pastures where flocks of sheep and goats were feeding. The dew was still on the grass, and the air was so fresh and sweet in this higher altitude that Joel walked on with a feeling of strength and vigor unknown to him before. Oh, look! he cried, clasping his hands in delight as a sudden turn brought them to the upper course of the brook whose waters, falling far below, had refreshed them the night before. The poetry of the Psalms came as naturally to the lips of this beauty-loving little Israelite as the breath he drew. Now he repeated in a low, reverent voice, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Oh, Phineas, did you ever know before that there could be such green pastures and still waters? The man smiled at the boy's radiant, upturned face. Yea, the earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, he murmured. We have indeed a goodly heritage. Hushed into silence by the voice of the hills and the beauty on every side, they walked on till the road turned again. Just ahead stood a house unusually large. For a country district, everything about it bore an air of wealth and comfort. Our journey is at an end now, said Phineas. Yonder lies the house of Nathan, then Obed. He owns all those flocks and herds we have seen in passing this last half hour. It is with him that I have business, and we will tarry with him until after the Sabbath. They were evidently expected, for a servant came running out to meet them. He opened the gate and conducted them into a shaded courtyard. Here another servant took off their dusty sandals and gave them water to wash their feet. 
They had barely finished when an old man appeared in the doorway. His long beard and hair were white as the abba he wore. Phineas would have bowed himself to the ground before him, but the old man prevented it by hurrying to take both hands in his and kiss him on each cheek. Peace be to thee, thou son of my good friend Jesse, he said. Thou art indeed most welcome. Joel lagged behind. He was always sensitive about meeting strangers, but the man's cordial welcome soon put him at ease. He was left to himself a great deal during the few days following. The business on which the old man had summoned Phineas required long consultations. One day they rode away together to some outlying pastures and were gone until nightfall. Joe did not miss them. He was spending long, happy hours. In the country sunshine, there was something to entertain him every way he turned. For a while he amused himself by sitting on the door and poring over a roll of parchment that Sarah, the wife of Nathan ben Obed, brought him to read. She was an old woman, but one would have found it hard to think so, had he seen how briskly she went about her duties of caring for such a large household. After Joel had read for some little time, he became aware that someone was singing outside in a whining, monotonous way, and he laid down his book to listen. The voice was not loud, but so penetrating he could not shut it out and fix his mind on his story again. So he rolled up the parchment and laid it on the chest from which it had been taken. Then, winding his handkerchief around his head, turban fashion, he limped out in the direction of the voice. Just around the corner of the house, under a great oak tree, a woman sat churning. From three smooth poles joined at the top to form a tripod, a goatskin bag hung by long leather straps. This was filled with cream. She was slapping it valiantly back and forth in time to her weird song. Her feet were bare, and she wore only a coarse cotton dress. But a gay red handkerchief covered her black hair, and heavy copper rings hung from her nose and ears. The song stopped suddenly as she saw Joe. Then, recognizing his guest, she smiled at him so broadly that he could see her pretty white teeth. Joe hardly knew what to say at this unexpected encounter, but bethought himself to ask the way to the sheepfolds and the water tower. It a, is a long way there, said the woman doubtfully. Joe flushed as he felt her black eyes scanning his misshapen form. Just then Sarah appeared in the door, and the maid repeated the question to her mistress. To be sure, she said, you must go out and see our shepherds with their flocks. We have a great many employed just now on all the surrounding hills. Rhoda, call your son, and bid him bring hither the donkey that he always drives to market. The woman left her churning, and presently came back with a boy about Joel's age, leading a donkey with only one ear. Joel knew what that meant. At some time in its life the poor beast had strayed into some neighbor's field, and the owner of the field had been at liberty to cut off an ear in punishment. The boy that led him wore a long shirt of rough hair cloth. His feet and legs were brown and tanned. A shock of reddish sunburned hair was the only covering for his head. There was a squint in one eye, and his face was freckled. He made an awkward obeisance to his mistress. Buzz, she said, this young lad is your master's guest. Take him out and show him the flocks and herds and the sheepfolds. He has never seen anything of shepherd life, so be careful to do his pleasure. 
Stay, she added to Joel. You will not have time to visit them all before the midday meal, so I will give you a lunch and you can enjoy an entire day in the fields. As the two boys started down the hill, Joel stole a glance at his companion. What a stupid-looking fellow, he thought. I doubt if he knows anything more than this sleepy beast I am riding. I wonder if he enjoys any of this beautiful world around him. How glad I am that I am not in his place. Buzz, trudging along in the dust, glanced at the little cripple on the donkey's back with an inward shiver. What a dreadful lot his must be, he thought. How glad I am that I am not like he is. It was not very long till the shyness began to wear off, and Joel found that the shepherd lad had a very busy brain under his shock of tangled hair. His eyes might squint, but they knew just where to look in the bushes for the little hedge sparrow's nest. They could take unerring aim, too, when he sent the smooth sling stones whizzing from the sling he carried. How far can you shoot with it? asked Joel. For answer, Buzz looked all around for some object on which to try his skill. Then he pointed to a hawk slowly circling overhead. Joel watched him fit a smooth pebble into his sling. He had no thought that the boy could touch it at such a distance. The stone whizzed through the air like a bullet, and the bird dropped several yards ahead of them. See, said Buzz, as he ran to pick it up and display it proudly, I struck it in the head. Joe looked at him with increasing respect. That must have been the kind of sling that King David killed the giant with, he said, handing it back after a careful examination. King David, repeated Buzz dully. Seems to me I've heard of him sometime or other, but I don't know about the giant. Why, where have you been all your life, cried Joel in amazement. I thought everybody knew about that. Did you never go to a synagogue? Buzz shook his bushy head. They don't have synagogues in these parts. The man calls us in and reads to us on the Sabbath, but I always get sleepy when I sit right still, and so I generally get behind somebody and go to sleep. The shepherds talk to each other a good deal about such things. I'm never with them, though. I spend all my time running errands. Shocked at such ignorance, Joe began to tell the shepherd king's life with such eloquence that Buzz stopped short in the road to listen. Seeing this, the donkey stood still also, wagged its one ear, and went to sleep. But Buzz listened wider awake than he had ever been before in his life. The story was a favorite one with Joel, and he put his whole soul into it. Who told you that? asked Buzz, taking a long breath when the interesting tale was finished. Why, I read it myself, answered Joel. Oh, can you read? asked Buzz, looking at Joel in much the same way that Joel had looked at him after he killed the hawk. I do not see how anybody can. It puzzles me how people can look at all those crooked black marks and call them rivers and flocks and things. I looked one time just where the man had been reading about a great battle, and I didn't see a single thing that looked like a warrior or a sword or a battle axe, though he called them all by name. There were several little round marks that might have been meant for sling stones, but it was more than I could make out how he could get any sense out of it. Joel leaned back and laughed till the hills rang, laughed till the tears stood in his eyes, and the donkey waked up and ambled on. Buzz did not seem to be in the least disturbed by his merriment, although he was puzzled as to its cause. 
He only stooped to pick up more stones for his sling as they went on. It was not long till they came to some of the men, great brawny fellows dressed in skins, with coarse matted hair and tanned faces. How little they knew of what was going on in the busy world outside their fields. As Joe talked to them, he found that Caesar's conquests and heroes' murders had only come to them as vague rumors. All the pretty wars and political turmoils were unknown to them. They could talk to him only of their flocks and their faith, but as simple as their lives. Joe, in his wisdom, felt himself infinitely their superior. Child though he was, but he enjoyed his days spent with them. He and Buzz ate the ample lunch they had brought, dipped up water from the brook in cups they made of oak leaves, and both finally fell asleep to the droning music of the shepherd's pipes, played softly on the uplands. A distant rumble of thunder aroused them late in the afternoon, and they started up to find the shepherds calling in their flocks. The gaunt sheepdogs raced to and fro, bringing the straying goats together. The shepherds brought the sheep into line with well-aimed slingshots, touching them first on one side and then on the other, as oxen are guided by the touch of the goad. Joel looked up at the darkening sky with alarm. Who would have thought of a storm on such a day, he exclaimed. Buzz cocked his eyes at the horizon. I thought it might come to this, he said. For as we came along this morning, there was no spider webs on the grass. The ants had not uncovered the doors of their hills, and all the signs pointed to wet weather. I thought, though, that the time of the latter rains had passed a week ago. I'm always glad when the stormy season is over. This one is going to be a hard one. What shall we do? asked Joel. Buzz scratched his head. Then he looked at Joel. You never could get home on that trifling donkey before it overtakes us and they'll be worried about you. I'd best take you up to the sheepfold. You can stay all night there very comfortably. I'll run home and tell them where you are and come back for you in the morning. Joe hesitated, appalled at spending the night among such dirty men, but the heavy boom of thunder steadily rolling nearer silenced his half-spoken objection. By the time the donkey had carried him up the hillside to the stone-walled enclosure round the watchtower, the shepherds were at the gates with their flocks. Joe watched them go through the narrow passage one by one. Each man kept count of his own sheep and drove them under the rough sheds put up for their protection. A good-sized hut was built against the hillside where the shepherds might find a refuge. Buzz pointed it out to Joel. Then he turned the donkey into one of the sheds and started homeward on the run. Joel shuddered as a blinding flash of lightning was followed by a crash of thunder that shook the hut. The wind bore down through the trees like some savage shrieking and moaning as it flew joe heard a shout and looked out to the opposite hillside buzz was flying along in breakneck race with the storm at that rate he would soon be home how he seemed to enjoy the race as his strong limbs carried him lightly as a bird soars at the top he turned to look back and laugh and wave his arms a sinewy little figure standing out in bold relief against a brazen sky Joe watched till he was out of sight. Then, as the wind swooped down from the mountains, great drops of rain began to splash through the leaves. The men crowded into the hut. One of them started forward to close the door, but stopped suddenly with his brown, hairy hand uplifted. Hark ye, he exclaimed. Joe heard only the shivering of the wind in the treetops, but the man's trained ear caught the bleeding of a stray lamb, far off and very faint. I was afraid I was mistaken in my count. 
They jostled through the gate so fast I could not be sure. Going to a row of pegs along the wall, he took down a lantern hanging there and lit it, then wrapping his coat of skins more closely around him and calling one of the dogs, he set out into the gathering darkness. Joe watched the fitful gleam of the lantern flickering on unsteadily as a will o' the whips. A moment later, he heard the man's deep voice calling tenderly to the lost animal. Then the storm struck with such fury that they had to stand with their backs against the door of the hut to keep it closed. Flash after flash of lightning blinded them. The wind roared down the mountain and beat against the house till Joe held his breath in terror. It was midnight before it stopped. Joe thought of the poor shepherd out on the hills and shuddered. Even the men seemed uneasy about him as hour after hour passed and he did not come. Finally he fell asleep in the corner on a pile of woolly skins. In the gray dawn he was awakened by a great shout, he got up and went to the door. There stood the shepherd. His bare limbs were cut by stones and torn by thorns. Blood streamed from his forehead where he had been wounded by a falling branch. The mud on his rough garments showed how often he had slipped and fallen on the steep paths. Joe noticed with a thrill of sympathy how painful he limped, but there on the bowed shoulders was the lamb he had wandered so far to find, and as the welcoming shout arose again, Joel's weak little cheer joined gladly in. How brave and strong he is, thought the boy. He risked his life for just one pitiful little lamb. The child's heart went strangely out to this rough fellow, who stood holding the shivering animal sublimely, unconscious that he had done anything more than a simple duty. Joe, who felt uncommonly hungry after his supperless night, thought he would mount the donkey and start back alone. But just as he was about to do so, a familiar bushy head showed itself in the door of the sheepfold. Buzz had brought him some wheat cakes and cheese to eat on the way back. Joe was so busy with this welcome meal that he did not talk much. Buzz kept eyeing him in silence, as if he longed to ask some questions. At last, when the cheese had entirely disappeared, he found courage to ask it. "'Were you always like that?' he said abruptly, motioning to Joel's back and leg. Somehow the reference did not wound him as it generally did. He began to tell Buzz about the Samaritan boy who had crippled him. He never was able to tell the story of his wrongs without growing passionately angry. He had worked himself into a white heap by the time he had finished. "'I'd get even with him,' said Buzz excitedly with a wicked squint of his eyes." "'How would you do it?' demanded Joel. "'Cripple him as he did me?' "'Worse than that!' exclaimed Buzz, stopping to take a deliberate aim at a leaf overhead and shooting a hole exactly through the center with his sling. "'I'd blind him as quick as that. It's a great deal worse to be blind than lame.' Joe closed his eyes and rode on a few moments in darkness. Then he opened them and gave a quick, glad look around the landscape. "'My, what if I never could have opened them again?' he thought. "'Yes, Buzz, you're right,' he said aloud. "'It is worse to be blind. So I shall take Rehum's eyesight also, sometime. Oh, if that time were only here!' Although the subject of the miracle of Cana had been constantly in the mind of Phineas, and often near his lips, he did not speak of it to his host till the evening before his departure. It was just at the close of the evening meal, Nathan Ben Obed rose halfway from his seat in astonishment, then sank back. "'How old a man is this friend of yours?' he asked. "'About thirty, I think,' answered Phineas. "'He is a little younger than I. Where was he born?' in Bethlehem. I have heard it said, though, his home has always been in Nazareth. 
Strange, strange, muttered the man, stroking his long white beard thoughtfully. Joel reached over and touched Phineas on the arm. Will you not tell Nathan about the wonderful star that was seen at that time? He asked in a low tone. What was that? asked the old man, arousing from his revere. When Phineas had repeated his conversation with the stranger on the day of his journey, Nathan ben Obed exchanged meaning glances with his wife. Send for the old shepherd Heber, he said. I would have speech with him. Rhoda came in to light the lamps. He bade her roll a cushioned couch that was in one corner to the center of the room. This old shepherd Heber was born in Bethlehem, he said, but since his sons and grandsons have been in my employ, he has come north to live. He used to help keep the flocks that belonged to the temple and that were used for sacrifices. He has always been one of the purest of lives, and I have never known such faith as he has. He is over a hundred years old, so must have been quite aged at the time of the event of which he will tell us. Presently an old man tottered into the room, leaning on the shoulders of his two stalwart grandsons. They placed him gently on the cushions of the couch, and then went into the courtyard to await his readiness to return. Like the men Joel had seen the day before, they were dressed in skins and were wild-looking and rough, but this aged man with dim eyes and trembling, wrinkled hands sat before them like some hoary patriarch in a fine linen mantle. Pleased as a child, he saluted his new audience and began to tell them his only story. As the years had gone by, one by one, the lights of memory had gone out in darkness. Well-known scenes had grown dim. Old faces were forgotten. Names he knew as well as his own could not be recalled. But this one story was as fresh and real to him as on the night he learned it. The words he chose were simple. The voice was tremulous with weakness, but he spoke with a dramatic fervor that made Joel creep nearer and nearer until he knelt unknowing at the old man's knee, spellbound about the wonderful tale. We were keeping watch in the fields by night, began the old shepherd. I and my sons and my brethren, it was still and cold, and we spoke but little to each other. Suddenly, over all the hills and plains shone a great light, brighter than light of moon or stars or sunshine. It was so heavenly, while we knew it must be the glory of the Lord, we looked up on, and we were sore afraid, and hid our faces, falling to the ground. And lo, an angel overhead spoke to us from out of the midst of the glory, saying, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. Peace on earth, good will toward men. Oh, the sound of the rejoicing that filled that upper air. Ever since in my heart have I carried that foretaste of heaven. The old shepherd paused with such a light on his upturned face that he seemed to his awe-struck listeners to be hearing again that same angelic chorus. The chorus that rang down from the watchtowers of heaven across earth slowly sheepfold on that first Christmas night. There was a solemn hush. Then he said, And when they were going away, and the light and the song were no more with us, we spake one to another, and rose in haste, and went to Bethlehem. 
and we found the babe lying in a manger with Mary's mother, and we fell down and worshipped him. Thirty years has it been since the birth of Israel's Messiah, and I sit and wonder all the day, wonder when he will appear once more to his people. Surely the time must be well nigh here when he might, may claim his kingdom. O oh Lord, let not thy servant depart until these eyes that beheld the child shall have seen the king in his beauty. Joel remained kneeling beside old Heber, perfectly motionless. He was fitting together the links that he had lately found, a child heralded by angels, proclaimed by star, worshipped by the Magi, a man changing water into wine at only a word. I shall yet see him, exclaimed the voice of old Heber, with such sublime assurance of faith that it found a response in every heart. There was another solemn stillness, so deep that the soft fluttering of a night moth around the lamp startled them. Then the child's voice rang out, eager and shrill, but triumphant as if inspired. Phineas, he it was who changed the water into wine. This friend of Nazareth and the babe of Bethlehem are the same. The heart of the carpenter was strangely stirred, but it was full of doubt. Not that the Christ had been born, the teachings of all his lifetime led him to expect that, but that the chosen one could be a friend of his. The thought was too wonderful for him. The old shepherd sat on the couch, feebly twisting his fingers and talking to himself. He was repeating bits of the story he had just told them, and lo, an angel overhead, he muttered. Then he looked up, whispering softly, Glory to God in the highest, and peace. He seems to have forgotten everything else, said Nathan, signaling to the men outside to lead him home. His mind wiped away entirely that it may keep unspotted the record of that night's revelation. He tells it over and over, whether he has it listener or not. They led him gently out, the white-haired, white-souled old shepherd Heber. He seemed to Joel that the wrinkled face was illuminated by some inner light not of this world that he lingered among men only to repeat to them over and over his one story the, that strange sweet story of bethlehem's first christmas tide thank you for listening to another episode of acresoft story classic mm-hmm.